I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. The news that I write about can feel far away and long ago. Sometimes it's literally both things. But I think that it helps us understand our place in the universe. It broadens our sense of wonder. It expands our curiosity. And those are qualities that you carry with you into the rest of your day. The journalism I do depends on subscribers to The Washington Post. Become one today at postreports.com slash subscribe. Thank you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 8th. Today, what Pete Buttigieg is doing to diversify his support and appeal to Black voters. Plus, a woman who chose to leave life on her own terms. We need to talk about whiteness. Part of being white is not having to think about race as much as the ways in which, if you're a person of color in this country, you are constantly reminded of race in general and of your race. And we need to break that down and and make sure that, frankly, white citizens in this country understand the stake that they have. That is Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. Part of my message is that while, uh, of course, those who suffer most from systemic racism are those who are discriminated against, it's also the case that this entire country is being held back and dragged down by systemic racism. It is one of the things that most harms America's present and possibility of a good future. The reason why I asked Buttigieg about race was because he's been struggling to get traction with Black voters. His polling in Iowa and New Hampshire put him in fourth place behind Senator Bernie Sanders. But in South Carolina, where 60 percent of Democratic voters are Black, he's barely registering. There's no question about that. I'm I'm not going to sit here and tell you otherwise, because I think everybody uh, knows that's an issue. That's Representative James Clyburn. He's one of South Carolina's most influential Black Democrats. And he suggested that older African Americans are wary of the fact that Buttigieg is gay. Uh, But I'm saying it's an issue not the way it used to be. My own grandson (laughs) is very much for him. He is a paid staffer working on the campaign. Back in July, the Buttigieg campaign put together a focus group to help determine how they could get more Black supporters. A memo about that focus group was recently leaked, and it showed that most of the 24 people in the group said that they felt uncomfortable about his being gay. That caused this controversy because it created this narrative that actually the voters were to blame rather than Buttigieg or his campaign itself. So I asked him about that. Do you think that your being gay is why you've struggled to get support from Black people? No, I believe what is really going to decide Black voters' decisions is what makes any voter decide who they're going to pick, which is the question of how is my life going to be different 
if you are president versus one of your competitors. And if we get that message across, then I think that uh, that we'll earn the support that we need to win. Uh, you know, what I found is that uh, even when you're in a, a part of the community, as it was with a lot of socially conservative parts of my own community here in South Bend, uh, that maybe you're still on a journey toward acceptance when it comes to LGBTQ equality, that when they understand who you are and what you have to offer, the work that you're doing, that you're seeking to do, a lot of those other things fall away. The work that he's focused on is something that he calls the Douglas Plan, named after Frederick Douglass. The plan lays out policies that would help fight systemic and institutional racism. It involves a lot of proposals related to criminal justice reform, infrastructure investments, healthcare, and education programs. And so the Douglas Plan is not only about ensuring that we invest in equality for Black Americans, economic opportunity, health, equality, and education in every one of the areas that I've mentioned, but also this is a way to make our country more whole. I'm wondering how you plan to pitch this to people who will not necessarily benefit from from the Douglas Plan, from white people, from people who are not the focus of the things that you're intending to change. I think that everybody needs to feel invested. And this is one of the reasons why, while this is a response uh, largely to black voters asking what my agenda for black America is, this is also something that I talk about with majority white audiences, because uh, this can't just be treated as a specialty issue, something you only talk about when you're in front of black audiences. This is something the whole country needs to pause and ask, which is how much longer will we tolerate the racial inequalities that make our country fall short of our ideals and fall short of our potential. And right now, when you have a a White House that very cynically exploits racial divisions and racial inequalities to drive this country further apart, we see in even more ways just how much harm can be done uh, each passing day that America fails to tackle this problem. How do you think that message is resonating so far with white people that you've talked about with? Well, you know, I just uh, have come off a bus tour through rural areas, conservative areas in Iowa, where there are mostly white and largely moderate or conservative audiences, where I have talked about the Douglas plan and gotten a good response. I think because I'm, again, offering it up in this spirit that this whole country is going to be better off when we confront this really demon of systemic racism that has denied America the chance to be what we might. Well, that's why I remain somewhat skeptical that an idea like the Douglas plan can get enough support from regular white people and from regular white lawmakers. Because I think that there is still this lack of acknowledgement or recognition of the ways that systemic racism plays a role in everyone's life and, and honestly holds the country back as a whole. It's true. I think, uh, again, one of the problems is this idea that racism is only something to be concerned about if you were a victim of racial discrimination. You know, one of the things we saw, for example, in 2016 was ways in which Russia identified uh, racial inequality and racist attitudes as a national security vulnerability Hmm. in the United States and then exploited it. Another thing that's happening is the way in which people with similar interests have been divided against each other, very well documented in a book recently called Dying of Whiteness, which is about how a lot of people were turned against uh, health and other social safety net programs they would benefit from because of racial divisions. But this is precisely why we need leadership to talk about these issues, to demand action on these issues. And one of the advantages of coming in as a president who had made something like the Douglas plan a big part of my campaign is that I would arrive with a mandate to do these things. 
I saw someone describe you recently as a younger, less problematic Joe Biden. Do you think that's fair? Mm, I, I feel like I'm pretty different from the vice president. Um, of course, I am younger. I, th- I think uh, uh, there are some things we have in common and, and some things we view very differently. I think, you know, I'm very attuned to the importance of engaging the middle part of America, both in terms of a, a middle class and in terms of the American Midwest. But I also think I have a very different worldview shaped by the experiences of my own generation. And I, I do not believe that there's any such thing as going back to normal. I don't think that what we need to achieve in 2020 is to get over this sort of anomaly of the Trump presidency and return things to where they were. I think we have to build a new normal. I think we're confronting the failures of an entire era that has gone on for the last 30 or 40 years and need to replace it with a new one. And when I talk about the need to ensure, for example, that when the economy grows, it grows for more people. And when I talk about the the need for us to tackle major glaring existential problems from climate change to racial inequality, it's with a view toward building a a new and different era that I think uh, represents a, a, a viewpoint that's very much framed by coming from my generational background. I think that a lot of those themes that you just mentioned are are very consistent with the kinds of things that we have been hearing about since the beginning of your campaign. But I also think that there are some nuances in, in how you talk about things and ideas that you're pushing for that are different. So um, in preparing for this interview, we asked listeners of our podcast to send us questions that they have for you. And one person said that they had first heard you on Pod Save America. I get at the age of 37 as a mayor in the Midwest, this is not an obvious move. Um, But what I see is a moment when there is tectonic change going on in the country. I mean, to the extent that even now we're probably underreacting. And they were so impressed that they sent a donation to your campaign. And they, they said that they were impressed by your position on Medicare for all and the fact that you were willing to take radical liberal stances like talking about expanding the size of the Supreme Court or eliminating the electoral college. And those are things that people hear less from you now. And I think a lot of people see that as part of a shift toward being more moderate or at least being able to appeal to moderate voters. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that's true? Mm, I think uh, that's largely a media narrative that hasn't really followed what's going on on the ground. I still talk about those issues everywhere I go. And, And by the way, it's not always easy to pitch something like national popular vote when I'm in a place like New Hampshire. But I I talk about it because I think it's the right thing to do. Though to be fair, Medicare for all is something that you had talked about in the past that you are no longer in favor of. I have had the exact same position on Medicare for all, which is that getting Medicare to all Americans doesn't have to mean forcing them off their private insurance plans. Now, one thing that's happened that that's relatively new this year is a a kind of shift in the vocabulary, right? Where to uh, a lot of people, and I think now what it means when you say Medicare for all is that that has to mean you're on board with one of these plans that that terminates people's private plans. And because I've not been on board with that, we found different ways to talk about it. And I I call my vision Medicare. Medicare for all who want it. But, uh, you know, if you go back to when I launched this campaign in April or before I launched this campaign in January, February, uh, I've talked about the need to have a pathway to a, a Medicare for all environment that includes choice and that allows people to keep their private plans. So my position has not changed, but it's certainly the case that uh, I think some of the narratives have changed about what it means to really be progressive, which I'm concerned about because just to be really clear, my position on healthcare would 
would make me the most progressive president in more modern American history. It would be the biggest thing we've done in healthcare in more than 50 years. Uh, and while some say that's not good enough unless you also obliterate all the private plans out there, I just don't think that's the right policy. And I also don't think that's necessary in order to be considered progressive or bold. When you're thinking about the prospect of, of getting things done for ideas like expanding the Supreme Court or abolishing the Electoral College, if you were elected, how would you work with Congress to make that happen under the assumption that the Senate remains a Republican Senate? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very much hoping that assumption does not play out. I think, uh, as we saw in the recent results in Kentucky, there's a, a good chance of getting a Democratic Senate. But having said that, uh, no matter what the makeup of Congress, this is going to be a big lift. I mean, uh, adjusting the makeup of the Supreme Court, moving toward a national popular vote, this is not going to happen overnight. But to me, that's all the more reason that we need to build the movement to make it happen. Uh, America used to be very capable of structural reforms as recently as the 1970s. It was not that uncommon to have constitutional amendments to do things like change the voting age to 18. And I think the fact that it might take years and years and years to deliver a structural democratic reform like a national popular vote makes it all the more important to be pushing the idea early. And uh, there, there's no better way to do that. There's no uh, bigger microphone to do that from than the American presidency, especially when it's very much the right thing to do. And if we can strip it of its partisan features, set it up in a way that it kicks in, uh, perhaps when nobody's quite sure what party will benefit, uh, I think that uh, it will become clear that there are not a lot of convincing principled arguments against it. Another one of our listeners on the podcast was very curious about your plans for reforming the presidency itself. I think that the Trump presidency has exposed that, that much of our government depends on institutional norms rather than laws. And so what reforms would you try to implement to prevent corruption, to prevent, as, as you've called in the past, authoritarian tendencies of the current White House? What would you change to make sure that doesn't happen for you or for a future president? The reality is a lot of this uh, has to come from Congress and from constraints that should be placed on the presidency. A lot of it comes from how the president behaves, but frankly, a lot of that's in, in the realm of what you don't do. In other words, uh, do no harm is is the first premise. But I also think there, there are areas where we need to constrain things that, that have just happened in, in the recent past. And one example I would give is open-ended authorizations for the use of military force. It's why I've proposed that uh, when we have an AUMF in the future, it should have a sunset. You know, right now there, there are troops in Africa, for example, based on the resolution that was passed to deal with 9-11. And when we had a, a loss of American troops in Niger, there were members of Congress who admitted they didn't even know we were there in the first place. Uh, it's an example of what can happen, I think, when you have these open-ended war powers passed along, not only because a president was asserting them, but frankly, because Congress didn't want to bother with it. It's politically tough to take these up or down votes. As a lot of people point out, if you were to be elected, you would be the first openly queer president in America. And I'm wondering why you think that's important or what that would symbolize, both in just the mere fact of it, but how would that be represented in your presidency and how you would conduct your presidency? I'm running, of course, to be president for all Americans, but having that background, uh, being the first gay president and, and uh, carrying that, that historic first in the White House, I think more than anything propels my desire to create an atmosphere of inclusion and belonging for the entire country. I think one of the things we're experiencing right now nationally is a, a kind of crisis of belonging and coming from a group that has been 
on the the wrong side or the harmed side of of so many patterns of exclusion in this country, I think motivates me to recognize patterns of exclusion that are very different, that apply to different people in different ways, that are not part of my experience, but that my experience motivates me to do something about. And I think that uh, anytime we can expand people's sense of belonging when they look at the White House, believing that it's for them, even if you don't uh, necessarily align with the president on every political choice, the more the presidency can be one of the things that holds this country together at a time when so many different pressures and forces and uh, and people are working to pull us apart. But I also think that when you look back on the Obama presidency, I think a lot of people that I've talked to, a lot of my friends say that they, as much as they, they acknowledge the symbolism of that, that they do feel like they are frustrated or disappointed by the ways that Obama sometimes represented respectability politics and how he presented himself and how he talked about race relations in the country. And I'm wondering if you're worried about that in terms of being able to both appeal to people who may not necessarily have a lot of gay friends or family members or who think a lot about gay issues, but at the same time appeal to the LGBT community. I think that's your your job as president is to find a way to speak for everybody. And uh, it's one thing for people to make legitimate critiques of you not reaching out to them or speaking out to the, uh, for them. I think it's stranger when you're criticized for being too inclined to speak out to people or, or to reach out. Uh, I think there, there can never be enough reaching out, especially at a moment like this. And uh, if you're only reaching out to people who are like you or people who like you, then it's, it's not really the kind of outreach that's going to build bridges and, and heal this country. Mayor Buttigieg, thank you so much. Thanks. Great to be with you. Pete Buttigieg is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He is a Democratic candidate for president. And now, one more thing. My name is Rosemary Bowen, and this is day two of my fast. All her life, she used to tell her children that she wanted to row her own boat, And that applied also to not wanting to have to be cared for at the end of her life. Tara Barampour covers aging and demographics for The Post. This fast is going to accomplish for me leaving life on my own terms. Her daughter said that for 20 years at all the family reunions, she would always remind everybody that when the time came that she couldn't take care of herself, she would stop eating and drinking and hope to die that way. My mother was fiercely independent. She lived in her own apartment, did her own cooking and cleaning, socialized with lots of dear friends. But last fall, she got a spinal compression fracture, which was not terminal, which was something that could be healed. And the doctors said if she did physical therapy and wore a brace that in three months she would probably be better. But she decided that it was time to go. She easily could have lived for a couple more years, but she said she had to do what was right for her. She asked her daughter to film the fast. Her daughter Mary Beth filmed the fast. 
because she wanted to show other people that this could be done and that this was a relatively pain-free, relatively easy way to do it. It was not her first choice. Her first choice would have been to take a pill. But she lived in Maryland, which is a state that does not have aid in dying laws. In fact, most states don't. So this was a second best choice. One of my greatest joys in dying is freeing up the family not to be so engrossed in my last act. Okay, but you know that I would much rather have you live for another year or two. Oh, God. No, I do, I do. But I mean, I always thought that the main reason was the independence. I, I, that it's understood that's part of living independence, Mary Beth. It's understood. Anybody who lives without independence to me, that that is not like it may be for some. It's not for me. Okay. Her daughter said it was excruciating. She used to try to hold back tears during the time that she was with her mother, and she was with her mother every day. Then she would leave and burst into tears in the parking garage. But she said it was also really one of the most moving experiences she'd ever had. And she said something along the lines of how her mother had brought her into the world and now she was helping her mother leave the world. Well, I'm sitting up here talking to Mary Beth and I've been just walking down the hall and now I realize she's she's taking a picture of me. It seems to me that I am the most photographed dyer you ever saw. Rosemary Bowen died late last year at the age of 94. Rosemary's daughter made a short film about her mother's decision to end her life. It premiered in Washington, D.C. last weekend. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Rennie Svarnovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 